This episode is brought to you in part by Regent College, Vancouver, Canada. Experience God's call to a life more abundant with our one to two week summer courses. Sign up today at rgnt.net slash summer. A few weeks ago, Harbor Media co-sponsored a short conference with Sojourn Network, a church planning network here in Louisville. I served on the board, and they wanted to give pastors and ministry leaders a chance to gather and think about the idea of redemptive presence. What does it mean for Christians to be a redemptive presence in our communities? So I got together three people who have done a lot of writing and thinking on the topic. It was a great event. There were talks from each speaker. They ranged from art to politics to what it means to be the church. And in the middle of the day, there was a panel discussion on this idea of redemptive presence or faithful presence. The idea was to kind of have a live episode of Cultivated. So here it is. It's not perfect. You'll hear a couple of spots where we had trouble with mics or where mics were moving around on people's clothes. So bear with us. It was our first time. My guests were Brett McCracken. Brett is the arts and culture editor at the Gospel Coalition, and he's the author of several books, including Hipster Christianity and Gray Matters. His most recent book is called Uncomfortable, and it's about how the church should be a countercultural place where all kinds of different people come together to share life and faith. Next was Karen Swallow Pryor, a literature professor at Liberty University and the author of Booked and Fierce Convictions. You may have read articles from her in Christianity Today, The Atlantic, The Gospel Coalition, and all kinds of other places. She's a sharp cultural critic and a great writer. Last but not least was David Taylor. David's a professor of theology at Fuller Seminary and the author, editor, and co-author of several books on theology and the arts. His most recent book is called The Theater of God's Glory, Calvin, Creation, and the Liturgical Arts. You might know David elsewhere, though. He was the guy behind Fuller Studios' short film called The Psalms, and it was a conversation between Eugene Peterson and Bono from U2. Naturally, having been the only guy on the panel to have met Bono, I kicked off the conversation asking David the obvious question. What's Bono really like? Uh, (laughs) He is very kind, very hospitable. When... We filmed in the Peterson home in, in Montana. It was myself and my wife, five crew for the film, two assistants, and then the Petersons. He walks in, he greets everybody, asks everybody what their name is. Three hours later, he says goodbye to everybody by name. And he brought a gift to Eugene and Jan, because um, he's a gift giver. And having been married to his wife for... 40 years-ish, four kids, bandmates, friends from high school. Like, you can tell there's a, a relational groundedness in his life. Yeah. And, um, and it comes across. It's, it's a very genuine sense of care that he has for people. And uh, so that's what it's really like. Really? I well, think tra- Bono. <laughs> Correct me if I'm wrong. Well, it translates in the, in the videos as well, just his presence. Yeah. He just seems like a very surprisingly down-to-earth guy for being one of the biggest rock stars on the planet. So, You know, I'll, I'll say this as well, just to commend him. I, I don't know what your opinions are of Bono, but when we first filmed in April of 2015, it was at the tail end of preparations for their tour, uh, Songs of uh, Innocence, I believe. <clears throat> as you can imagine, getting ready for a YouTube tour is insane business. And we were asking him to come and have a conversation with somebody that he admired tremendously, Eugene Peterson. And he simply did not have as much time as he wanted to prepare properly. So at the end of our interview, recorded interview, when the cameras went off, um, I could tell that he was a little bit flustered. And two days later, when I landed 
in Houston, I get an email from somebody named PDH. And I had no idea who this was until I opened up the email and it's Paul David Houston, AKA Bonham. Mm. And he apologizes mm. for not having been well prepared and wanted to make it up to me. And I thought to myself, oh, that's really fascinating. I mean, the guy knows princes and presidents and prime ministers and powerful people and other things that start with the letter P. But there's a <laughs> sense of a sort of integrity, like he had been invited to, he didn't get money for this, right? No. Uh, he's not gonna get famous, but it was just sort of this internal integrity I, I did not honor, you know, my hosts. And then so that's why we did a second interview in New York City. And, and that morning he uh, gathered with his chaplain and uh, read through the Psalms. And he was tremendously prepared and articulate. And I just have a lot of respect for that because you think, ah, I'm small fry to him. Right. And I'm okay. I don't, I don't mind that I'm small fry. But there's a sense in which he wanted to do it right. And I think it comes out of his hospitality. Mm. Um, Conviction. Yeah, great. Well, to shift topics a little bit, um, I'd love to hear from from any of you who wants to kind of kick us off. What might be an example of an effort by a Christian, whether it's an individual or an organization, who's doing work that you would point to and say, "Here's an example of somebody who's uh, who's a faithful presence, faithfully uh, embodying sort of the spirit of of uh, the spirit of Christ in the midst of." the culture, uh, in the midst of a hostile culture at times. Um, I mean, honestly, what you just said about Bono kind of resonates around those, around those ideas, but I wonder if other examples come to mind. Gosh, I mean, just because we were just talking about at lunch, this band Sleeping at Last, um, so Ryan O'Neill, it's basically a one-man show, but he's a Christian and he's making interesting music that's like thematically, uh, like each album is about a specific theme and he's, he's doing one on the Enneagram, so oh, he's wow. making a song on each number on the Enneagram. And he just created uh, <laughs> he just created the first song, released it, which is a one. And right. I'm a one, so man, this song just wrecked me. It was so <laughs> it was so right on. Um, but I, I would I would look to like Sleeping at Last as an example of a quality musician that's making music. Mm-hmm. And I don't think a lot of his fans know that he's a believer, has faith. Um, but it comes through so much in his music. Um, so that's one example. I, mean, I always go to Terrence Malick as an example when I answer these questions because he's my kind of muse as a film critic. Uh, Terrence Malick is a Christian. He, his, his faith really informs his movies, but in a kind of abstract, kind of maybe less direct way than some Christian films might. Sure. Um, and I don't think many critics would necessarily call his movies Christian films, maybe The Tree of Life being the exception, but... Um, yeah, he's just doing excellent work that has earned him credibility as one of the great film directors, widely you know, considered in Hollywood as one of the great living filmmakers. Uh, and yet he's, he's exploring in a very profound way biblical themes and yeah. Yeah, just the meaning of life through that lens. And there's something to both of those examples that's interesting in that they're, they're, not, like, they're not leading with their faith, right? It's not like faith forward. Terrence Malick certainly isn't making God's not dead. Right. right. Um, interesting. Thank God. Though I would watch that version of that movie. I would, yeah. <laughs> Just all voiceovers. <laughs> so I wonder, like, how important. I mean, it's a it's a mm. regular it's a regular debate. Like, mm-hmm. am I a Christian artist or an artist that's a Christian? Um, I wonder how you think through that tension. What What do you think about that? Well, I'll. They can, this will help me. Answer, I'll answer both questions maybe with the example that came to my mind is Marilyn Robinson, um, who's a novelist and essayist, 
um, and she's a Calvinist. Her politics are very liberal. Um, but she, I mean, she writes works that are very much about the Christian faith and in her fiction um, and her essays, but she tackles some of the most sacred intellectual cows of our age, like in Absence of Mind, where she takes on rational skepticism. And she recently had, uh, she reviewed, in, in the New York Times, she reviewed a new book by a literary scholar on um, Genesis and the creation story. And she just dismantles, <laughs> you know, modernist skeptical belief, you know, in, in nothing. Um, and so she's so true to her Christian faith and true to the life of the mind and doesn't back away from any of it. She doesn't compromise. It, it's, she's just, she's an amazing example. And so I, I see her as someone who, who is an artist and a Christian, I mean, really both. You, can, you really, uh, her, her work is very much about her faith and her faith is very much about her work. And I guess, you know, as much as, in as much as I'm an artist, I think of myself really more as a teacher and, you know, I do write, so, but teaching is my first passion and gift. And so everything I do comes out of my impulse to teach. Um, so for me, I guess it's easy to keep it all, all integrated. Um, mm. So, but I'm not a real artist, so it's easy for me to say. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'll just answer your question, your first question. Uh, my boss is a guy named Makoto Fujimura. He's the director of the Brown Center at Fuller Seminary. Mm-hmm. And w- what I like about Mako is that he feels at home navigating different professional worlds. So his father's a scientist, so that makes him at home in the science world. He's interested in technology, so he engages that world. Obviously, the arts, the church, um, elite you know, artist communities as well as more humble ones. He had a chance to partner with Martin Scorsese, or at least to play the role of consultant on the movie Silence. Um, He's very involved in the art community and church community in Japan. So he's over there a lot. So what I appreciate, and and he talks, uses language of culture care, uses language of generativity. And I I find myself naturally drawn towards that. But I, I, I think the one thing that I would say characterizes him as well as the people I tend to respect is he's not, he's not an anxious person. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so there's, it's a combination of being at home in your own skin, which is not easily acquired, but also I think at home <laughs> with the sometimes not predictable ways that God brings about renewal within the world and communities and people's lives. Again, taking so much time to accomplish things that we see in, you know, in Holy Scripture and to think, okay, if he takes hundreds of years or decades or what have you to accomplish things, then why would he do any differently with us? And I think that takes a tremendous amount of faith in the character of God to choose to be non-anxious, especially when you feel like things are going terribly wrong. Um, And I think that maybe the companion virtue, if I may use the language of virtue, is I think people like that know that they matter to the work of the kingdom of God, but don't see themselves as indispensable. And therefore, if I weren't on the scene, everything would go to pot. So I just, I love that sense of relaxed, gentle, peaceful, but very purposeful. It's not that they're frittering away their time. There's an intentionality, but it's a very kind of gracious, quiet, 
steady kind of work. And just another person that I mentioned earlier, Debbie Kaiser, who heads up this nonprofit geared towards adults with disabilities who are artists. She has a wonderful relationship with the city of Austin and a good relationship with churches. And I really appreciate, it's, it's hard work mm-hmm. to maintain either of those, but uh, she has this quiet, steadfast, faithful mm-hmm. presence mm-hmm. in that world. A lot of people in Austin don't know that she exists. I do, and I'm really grateful to know, and I want the whole world to know because I think what she's doing with that community is truly subversive to the kind of the dominant inertias that want in our society to privilege those who have certain capacities um, or positions of power. So I think those are the things that I respect. As far as your second question, it's a polyvalent term, and I think it's very contextual. Which is why I think we get tripped over it, because in your case, or in the case of the farmer or the lab technician, it's just not something to think about, except insofar as there are places like Center for Faith and Work from Redeemer that are trying to help all working professional people figure out those questions. It's in the art world that we get Mm. uh, tripped over, and it just requires a little bit more heavy lifting Mm. to figure out conceptually what are we talking about and where might we land in, in an answer. What do you think makes the arts unique in causing that uh, that particular tension? Well, in as much, we'd have to say we're talking about a specific kind of art because the graphic designer or the people who make jingles for Nike or the people who designed this carpet or my jacket or your shirt, we tend to not think that they have those similar issues. Uh, and maybe they don't in as much as they might fall under the rubric of a craftsperson. Mm-hmm. And I say craftsperson in the most honorable, amazing you know, calling to be a craftsperson. But once you bring this into the field of meaning-making activities, meaning-shaping activities, then you're talking about how human beings conceptualize themselves, how communities and societies construe what it means to have the good society or the good neighborhood or the good human life, the good educational or political or whatever, you know, at that point, you're kind of in the field of humanities in some sense, you're in the field of philosophy, you're asking quite consequential questions. And so then there has to be a sense in which, is there a Christian mind at work? Mm-hmm. What does that look like? What does it mean to think distinctively Christianly? And all those have to be unpacked. There's none of those phrases are self-evident. And, um, you know, so I, I, I want there to be a place for evangelistic art, really, really, really good evangelistic art. Mm-hmm. I want there to be a place for art that has very obvious utility. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't have a problem with that. But once you get into these other fields of the Terrence Malick's, <laughs> uh, and he's making a movie <clears throat> about creation and dinosaurs <laughs> and, and uh, <laughs> trees and light, you're asking yourself, I think a really important theological question, what is, how does God perceive light and sound and texture Mm -hmm. and scent? Mm -hmm. Because that's what he's talking about. And if we have a theological way to frame God's care of those things in creation, then Terrence Malick is a profoundly Christian (laughs) artist, but only in that really qualified sense. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, you're telling stories out of scripture, I love it. I want really good ones. You're telling stories about Christian figures in history. We want those. Yeah. Um, and in those sense, those can be more particularly Christian uh, concerns or subject matters. And I would love for there to be a place for all of those 
along with these that maybe subject matter are less explicitly concerned with subject mm -hmm. matter right. related to Christian themes. Something that, that makes me think of a, a question that I've been thinking about a lot and would love to talk about and explore is, is what would a Christian aesthetic look like if we, t if we go beyond the, the kind of content level, which is often how we talk about these things, right? Yeah. Something is Christian if it tells a story from the Bible or has a Christian theme or message. And, you know, Protestants are prone to that kind of word propositional orientation anyway, less than Catholics, which are oriented more towards the, maybe the visual. But what would, what would it look like to think about an aesthetic, a form that's Christian. Certainly in architecture, there's certain forms or styles that we can point to and say that's a Christian aesthetic. That's a form that was created and has always been associated with Christianity. In music too, there's sacred music styles that have been associated aesthetically right. with Christianity, just like other religions or other cultural contexts give rise to certain forms. So I've thought about that in film a lot. Like what would a, a film aesthetic, Christian aesthetic look like? Um, and, you know, Terrence Malick, I would say, maybe get, gets us somewhere in a direction of thinking about that. But yeah, it's just a, an interesting question to think about right. as artists. Um, we, we, we don't have to label ourselves publicly Christian artists, but I think our faith should have informed the way we tell stories mm -hmm. as much as what we're trying to say. Mm -hmm. One thing, when I spoke earlier about Hannah Moore, I mentioned how we, 21st century American evangelicalism has, and that's one word, um, <laughs> has inherited a lot from the Victorian age, and we don't even realize it. We often don't distinguish between Victorianism and biblical Christianity, but one of them is um, utilitarianism. Um, and mm -hmm. so, you know, so, we, you know, we have undue emphasis on, you know, that things must be useful, they must serve a purpose in order to be valuable. Of course, you know, when we apply that to human lives, that we know what that results in. But I think that's part of what makes us uneasy with art, that, you know, which Oscar Wilde said, all art is utterly useless, right? And what he meant by that is that it, it's just there to be enjoyed. It doesn't have to fulfill a purpose, which of course is sort of a purpose. But um, mm -hmm. so I, th but I think, I think, Modern Christianity is uncomfortable with something that doesn't, that is just there to be enjoyed mm -hmm. um, and to take pleasure in. So I think that's part of, goes back to the question, why do we struggle with what it means to be a Christian and to be an artist? Well, because we we think we have to be on mission all the time and fulfill some sort of purpose. Um, well, it's, it's funny you say that. Um, Marva Dawn has this great book, Lutheran Theologian, has this great book called Wasting Time with God, which mm -hmm. is all about sort of worship and the liturgy. And how and how our you know it's a, a lot of the book is a critique of the utilitarian ways we approach worship and and we gather as the church and we come hoping that we you know we go to church and we hope we get pumped up to get through the, the next week or we get five principles that are going to make me a better parent or whatever it is and you know and and her concept is no you're you're there to sort of sit and experience. Uh, and, and encounter glory, and it's not useful in the sense that it's not you. It's not this utilitarian thing, um, but it has this obvious tremendous benefit. And in a sense, kind of what you're saying, an encounter with the arts is a similar thing, and that you're you're coming to it not so much to get something out of it, uh, or you're or you're going to it not necessarily to make it a tool towards something else, mm -hmm. but as something for its own 
for its own ends. And which is interesting because liter- the root word of liturgy is work. Right. Right. So it is our work to just mm-hmm. right. receive. The work of the people, yeah. 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 I'll just add one thing. My, Please. I, I like hot peppers. I like all kinds of hot peppers, serrano peppers, <laughs> habanero peppers. I'm sitting at the dinner table. My daughter, who's four years old at the time, says, Daddy, why do you like hot peppers? I immediately think, because I like the, the spicy sensation in my mouth. But why do you like hot peppers? Because I, uh, I like the way that they combine with other foods, which is why I like Mexican food and I like Indian food. But Daddy, why do you like hot peppers? I like it because <laughs> I find some parts of my life boring and sort of the spice sort of has this moment of like <laughs> waking me up and it just kind of jolts me into feeling like, oh yes, it's uh, good. But Daddy, why do you like hot peppers? I like the colors, I like the variety, I, I, uh, I like what you can get in season, out of season, but daddy, why do you like the peppers? Oh, baby girl, just because I like it. Mm-hmm. And I realized all those answers before, they all matter, right? But then it's like I reached sort of my theological endpoint. Why do I like it? Because I intrinsically like it. And I did think of myself, my, my day job is as a theologian, so I'm like, that, that has to play in to everything I do you know, in the classroom, in the sense that at the end of the day, there is wonder, which is why I think Terrence Malick is so theologically profound, is because that sort of instinct <clears throat> taps into the primordial instinct of all things eventually end in wonder, which some people may use the language of worship sure. to describe that. And so when things are made in creation that are good for food and pleasing to the eye, that is like my first node for yeah, a Christian aesthetic, totally. that there is a place in which both of those are at work. And at the end of the day, why did you marry your spouse? Why do you love your children? Why do you wear that tie? Why do you read those novels? And there has to be a theology of taking pleasure in the intrinsicness of that thing. And again, it's downstream from God's pleasure that he takes in everything that he has made. Yeah. Love hot peppers and do what you will. <laughs> Wait, hold on, let me tweet that. <laughs> right. Just to go off of what David was just saying, I think that is true that an, an essential aspect of a Christian aesthetic, I think, is loving what we're, mm. loving the object. Mm. And I think what you can tell when an artist mm. doesn't love mm. the subject that they're, like, you can tell when a filmmaker is only using the actor's to advance a narrative or only using a shot of a landscape because it's you know essential to the plot. You can tell that versus like a Terrence Malick where you can see his love through the camera. You can see yeah. that he, he sees the beauty in it himself and is captivated by it. And mm-hmm. so I think in all of our art as Christians, we need to have that be driven by what, what do we love and, and does that come through mm-hmm. to the audience? Um, because too often, you know, if we're honest, Christian films, especially a lot of Christian literature is more utilitarian and it doesn't care about the characters. It doesn't care about the imagery, uh, unless it's servicing kind of the message. Uh, And so moving away from that utilitarian mindset to just this, um, gratuitous grace, Mm. you know, tinted Mm. love that is extraneous and it mirrors God's love for us. You know, God doesn't need us. He doesn't love us for any other reason except to love us. We don't understand that, but that's the core. Were you saying that makes me think about like 
the phenomenon that tends to happen with with indie rock bands. You know, you find a band when they're on their indie label and you love them. You know, <laughs> they're suffering. They're eating ramen in the back of a van and driving all over the country. And then they uh, then they get signed and they sell out, right? Mm-hmm. And and when you you know, some bands get signed and they don't sell out, but some bands get signed and all of a sudden this kind of raw thing that you that you loved has all this polish and all mm-hmm. this, and they've given up their aesthetic because for money, literally right. for money. Um, but I think I think it, it makes me think of that because mm-hmm. there's a way of selling out as an artist for for these utilitarian purposes and going, I'm gonna, yeah, maybe I love this thing. Um, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use it to my advantage to get this message across from me. And that's propaganda. There's a lot of propaganda in, in Christian yeah. contemporary culture. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. along those lines, I, I wonder, are there, any things, are there any specific things that you would point to as, if those are some of the virtues, like what, what are some of the vices? What are the things we see that, that, what are the things that you see that maybe are hindering Christians from, from being a faithful presence from showing up, from being heard, from being respected? Question makes sense? Mm-hmm. Do we have enough time? <laughs> <laughs> wow. I would just say, because it kind of goes off of the whole utilitarian conversation, I think um, part of utilitarianism is a, a speed and an efficiency where mm-hmm. we go so mm-hmm. fast and we're so, we busy our lives so much that it's more about the accomplishments and the productivity and the to-dos mm-hmm. um, than it is about actually, again, enjoying the thing and kind of uh, being grateful. And I think part of what impairs us and something that is a vice in a lot of Christian work is that we are going too fast to like sit still and notice what is good and true and beautiful, both in what we're doing, what we're called to do and whatever our vocation mm-hmm. um, and in what we see around us. And I think there's so much life um, when we can pause enough to notice things. Again, mm-hmm. like, like the Terrence Malick filmmakers of the world who literally will pause the narrative to like spend 20 minutes on the stars. Right. You know? <laughs> Do we pause in our work yeah. um, enough to be replenished um, and be grateful mm-hmm. you know, for the goodness? Mm-hmm. Or pause in the work. I mean, you say that, I think, immediately of the finale of of Twin Peaks from this summer, the, the, the return of Twin Peaks this summer. And there's this scene in, in I won't spoil anything, <laughs> but there's this scene in the finale where it's literally 20 minutes mm. of two people sitting in a car, mm. some sparse conversation that really, like, conversation doesn't go anywhere. He just wants you to sit in the tension of this, this moment and kind of experience the tension that these characters are experiencing. I, I think that's another example of moving away from this mm. utilitarian kind of approach mm. um, of actually entering into a story, entering into the lives of these characters, in a sense, suffering with them. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's, yeah. You have to suffer through 20 minutes of nothing happening. <laughs> but anyway, I didn't yeah. want me to hijack yeah, that. No, no, that's great. And I think suffering, too, is another thing we've neglected and, and being present. And we're talking about redemptive presence, and often that looks like pausing not only for the beautiful moments and the goodness, but also mm-hmm. the suffering. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think as artists, as workers in the world, we need to not move too quickly to res- resolution. Mm-hmm. Um, I see a lot of fear of being wrong mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. or making an error, or um, and which ultimately comes down to an unwillingness, I guess, to, to learn and to, to make a mistake. Um, and I don't know where that where that comes from, but um, that's just something that I see 
especially in the world of Christian writing that I that I do, which is more you know essays and articles and analysis, and um, people are just so well so nervous, so much nervousness. And I'm not even talking about political nervousness and you know fears, um, but just um, you know being so protective of doctrine, which is really a good thing, but to the point where it displays a real fear of even of just that you, it's, it's almost like, a, I feel like it's a self-protective, like the fear is really about oneself and yeah. losing one's own um, sense of, of confidence or. May I just add maybe something that would complement that in addition to the quick fast, I would say wanting everything to be uh, easily accessible, mm-hmm. um, kind of all mm-hmm. bottom shelf. Yeah. I, I, I'm, I want lots of bottom shelf art to be on offer, but if it's only an always bottom shelf, uh, I think it's a misunderstanding or a misreading of Jesus. Jesus loved everybody. Jesus made himself available. He was common. Yes, he was, and that's important. That was his mission, but there's a lot that he allowed to remain difficult Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and a lot that was not explained and a lot that the disciples did not understand and even on the other side of resurrection didn't understand, even on the other side of Pentecost didn't understand. Which is why I, I find myself gravitating towards Hebrews 11 as a more helpful model of how we can see our work in the arts world. All these people did faith work, but they did not all see the fruits of their labors come to fruition in their own lifetime. So there's a sense in which some things are allowed to last longer than we would want them readily at hand. They would be more difficult and invite people to do more difficult reading of artworks rather than just tell me what the answer is. I'm like, mm-hmm. if all I give you that, then you as a human being are not going to turn into that. And I promise you, you're going to be miserable and you're going to make everybody around you miserable mm-hmm. because you can't treat human beings that way. They're just, mm-hmm. they're difficult. Uh, difficult in the sense that uh, you can't just go to bed at night and say, I got my wife figured out. I got my kids figured out. I don't. It's always this labor of love, of leaning in, asking the question again, being humble enough to say, I don't understand. So in a sense, it all comes back to love, loving your audience, loving your work, loving your context, loving the materials, loving the materials for God's sake, uh, loving time and letting time do its good work over time. Uh, So yeah, unfortunately, there is so much, I don't know what, what names we would want to name, but just to say out in the world, there's tendencies within Christian communities to make work that is so readily accessible, so easily um, absorbed that it is equally and ironically dismissible. Yeah. Like right. it actually yeah, right. doesn't do that parabolic work of turning you inside out and turning you into a more whole human being, more like Jesus, said the pastor. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Well, I want to open up the floor to some, some questions from... You folks, got any? Following these themes? So the question sort of how, what's one thing that you you would like to see the local church doing to serve artists or, or the artists in the congregation? Yeah. Well, I, I think that the, uh, if the artistic world can be seen as, not in a utilitarian way, but as a mission field in the sense of just 
being presence in the world. The church can support artists. I attended a church um, for many years that had an artist, an, a position of artist in residence, mm -hmm. um, that, and that person served the church in some ways, but also was, you know, just to be part of the artist, local artistic community. So just um, supporting artists financially to do their work and not just in a, an evangelistic way, but just to be present in the artistic world and do good work. That's great. I mean, similar to that, but let me just sort of take a slightly contrarian <laughs> perspective. <laughs> I, I would want for artists the same thing that I would hope nurses and farmers and doctors and lawyers and politicians and school teachers would want, a sense of care. Like that you matter enough for me to sit at some length of time to listen to your life, listen to your story, listen to it respectfully, humbly, with interest, tell me, I don't understand anything about your world, so why do you do what you do? So e even if there's no financial, which of course I like that, and we did something like that, we had a residency program, I would, I think artists would have their tanks filled up if there was a sense in which the church as a body and the leadership in particular express the same care to them as a community, to their vocation as they might to all, whether or not you have an arts ministry, whether or not you, you know, become patrons of them. Just that sense of honest, generous curiosity. Tell me what you do. Why do you do it? It's like a real job. <laughs> yes, yeah. yeah, help me understand what you, you, you do rather than presuming upon you. So I, I, I think once that kind of comes to them, their tanks fill up and they're able to absorb a lot of other disappointments with a little bit more health than otherwise. I would just add one thing. Like I think one way we can really uh, love artists is just by showing in implicit ways in our church, the way we do church, that we mm. care about aesthetics. Mm. Uh, I think it's one thing to like talk about it and like even give money to artists. But if you're a church that like just doesn't care about its architecture or like doesn't care about the musical excellence, then it sends an implicit message to artists that, you know, I might not be at home here. So I would just encourage churches to really prioritize excellence and beautiful beauty, kind of superfluous beauty too, like going back to the utilitarian impulse. And I was thinking just throughout this whole conversation about um, La Sagrada Familia, this cathedral in, <laughs> in Barcelona um, that's been 150 years in the making. And it's just, you know, this great architect in, in Spain, uh, Gaudi, came up with this just insane design for a church that probably should never have been built, but it has been it's being built and it's, it's been 150 years each decade. They make small progress and it's supposed to be finished in, I think, 2026 after however many years. But like that idea of patience over time and investing as the church in mm -hmm. something that's going to be, it'll be the tallest cathedral in the world, the most just like stunningly beautiful. And when I, when I was there a few years ago, my wife and I, it just made me feel sad that like, oh, the Catholics get it. Like they, they are investing in art and, and just extravagant beauty uh, in a way that's jaw-dropping, that people from all over the world are going to come to this place and, and see the glory of God in that work. Uh, and so I think we need to be patient and like work for long, big projects, ambitious projects that exceed our generation, exceed our own lives mm. even. And that's so countercultural mm. in today's kind of world where we're, we do things efficiently and it has to, we have to see our glory, you know, in our lifetime. And yeah. So just to visualize it for you guys, uh, La Familia Sagrada is like a cross between the Gothic Cathedral. You can see that. 
mm-hmm. and Candyland. Yeah. <laughs> it's that, and I, I don't exaggerate, it really is that. And I think what Catholics will tell you if they were here on a panel is, we understand that something that is beautifully made costs something that mm-hmm. yields dividends for hundreds of years. Right. Like you keep right. finding yourself nourished and charged and energized in the same way that when somebody invites you to your home or takes you out and offers you a, a lovely, well cared for, prepared meal, you just find yourself talking about it for days, yeah. right? It's not dismissible it. and it just has this nourishing capacity, which I think Catholics understand largely. I mean, do we live like people who really believe in eternity? Right. Right. Yeah. No, I don't know that we do. Well, it's so counter. It's so counter to, to, <laughs> to consumerism too. You know, mm-hmm. this idea right. of investing yeah, in something that's not right. for me. Yeah. Like right. I'll never reap yeah. the reward. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, imagine imagine running a capital campaign for your church and saying <laughs> we need to raise you know 150 million dollars and you'll never walk in the doors of this building. Right. Right. So, Nor will your grandchildren. How did that go? How will that go? But, but like, <laughs> nah. to, Karen's, well. to Karen's point, that's, that communicates we're part of an eternal story. That yeah. it, is, it isn't about us. It isn't about the temporal imprint of my life as much as the, the glory of God from generation to generation. Yeah, yeah. for sure. And the questions? Got time for maybe one or two more? I mean, is there a bee in your bonnet? A burr <laughs> under your saddle? <laughs> a question you think... <laughs> I'm embarrassed to ask it, but oh, there we go. Today's the day of salvation. You said embarrassed. And you know, this is- <laughs> <laughs> well, y'all all kind of hit on it, but in in a few places, well, us in particular. I mean, the city that we're in is utilitarianism just rampant. Where you natural individuals that are autistic just by default get depressed. I mean, I'm, they're autistic. Just, it's repressed just by default. It, it happens. And so the question I'm curious about is, like, should we combat utilitarianism or mm. or should it be something that we just engage the culture that, right? and how do we engage the culture that doesn't appreciate or understand art? Is it one of those things where we just kind of throw it on the wall and if it sticks, it sticks and we're, we're just going to be a safe haven for artists uh, to, to encourage them to, to fill them up? Or is, do we need to actively engage yeah, and let me, I'm going to amplify that question just a little bit and then, and then throw it at you. Because one of the things that I've experienced, I, you know, I served as a pastor at Sojourn Church for 16 years and have been part of Sojourn Network and, and worked with a lot of worship leaders and all this. One of the things I see kind of consistently is this concern of like, we care about the aesthetics, you know, we care about beauty. Um, in a similar vein, oftentimes worship leaders are sort of lamenting, we care about the liturgy, we want this sort of in-depth expression of lament and all this. But people come on Sundays and they want it to be peppy and poppy and, mm-hmm. and fast and fun. Um, mm-hmm. And you end up feeling as a, as, a, as a pastor like you're screaming at the congregation, eat your vegetables, <laughs> you know? Um, right. So... So what do we do about that? Well, I'll offer a quick answer, and we need everything. It's all hands on deck. You need good sermons. You need good books. You need good small group curricula. You need good children's curricula. Uh, you need to go expose yourself to things. Like if you want to be a non-utilitarianistic person, <laughs> uh, if you want to be a generous, hospitable kind of person, whatever the opposite is, then it's, it's like it has to be a whole systemic thing because you can't preach sermons, but then the rest of our life is hardwiring us to be some other way. So are your church activities 
modeling a non-utilitarian way of approaching that? Your ministries and your programs, uh, is your family life. Mm-hmm. I mean, like I, I talked about this all the time, but then I realized I was treating my marriage a little mm-hmm. bit utilitarian. Like, I got 30 minutes, babe. Let's have a conversation because then I got to go make the magic happen in Louisville. So mm-hmm. I left on her birthday, which is really not good. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, it's one thing for me to get up. I don't, yeah, I, to get up and talk about it, but if me and in my close, like my close friends, guy friends, like for 20 years, still confront me on like my sense of, I'm always looking at my watch. This summer, I finally got rid of my, my wrist watch. I've got to un, unprogram myself. So I, it's good for me to be exposed to friends and other communities who are so generous, non-utilitarian, because that bears witness to me of the ways that Jesus is so generous in the production of wine at Canada and the one with the nard, all these places. So I don't think one sermon, I don't think a hundred sermons, I don't think a thousand sermons, it has to be systemic top to top bottom. Because the, the society at large is just like this big, you know, Mad Max kind of steamroller, just mm-hmm. steaming us, you know, down into utilitarian widgets. Mm-hmm. Well, my teaching philosophy is meet students where they are and take them where they should be. Um, so, you know, colleagues can lament the state of college freshmen today and their writing and bemoan this and bemoan that. But the fact is, we've got what we've got. And, you know, so we've got to meet them where, we are, where they are, um, whatever we're talking about, but take them, take them mm. higher. So, it, you know, we just have to understand our culture understand what the problems are um, and, and, and not assume, um, I think sometimes, and, and just, as you said, model it. I mean, I know my students, especially, the, and I'm just using this as an analogy, but I know my students, especially the English majors, because they're so smart, can, can theoretically get, by, get an A in a class without ever cracking open a book, because that's how they are. They're smart. They can, they're good at faking it. That's what English majors do. <laughs> so I know that. I was one. Um, so I counter that by building in practices that combat that. I give them reading quizzes every day to make sure that they've read the assignment. And lo and behold, when I've made them read the assignment for 10 points, the carrot, they actually do. And I'm forming them, and they're, they're developing the habit of actually reading and coming to class. And everyone's prepared. Everyone's read it. And everyone's talking about it. And everyone's having a great time. And it's, it's a cycle that perpetuates not accidentally but intentionally. So mm-hmm. it's mm-hmm. it's knowing our audience, knowing our culture, meeting them where they are, mm-hmm. modeling and building in practices to change it and knowing that it's not going to happen overnight and all the lamentations in the world aren't going to change what you've got. But okay. teaching and formation will, yeah. hopefully. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I just kind of, the whole incrementalism idea comes to mind, like, we don't want to be the condescending artists who like speak down to everyone else for not getting it. Like that's not right. going to move the needle for this. Like, so we do need to meet the audience where they're at. And uh, I think part of the whole like posture of um, compassion that we were talking about earlier in terms of a Christian aesthetic, it's not only in what you love that you're capturing in your camera or in your poem or whatever. It's also a compassion towards the audience and wanting mm-hmm. to actually like meet them enough to, that they'll actually listen and mm-hmm. see it. And I think sometimes you can have one, but then have a hostility towards the audience. You can mm. love what you're mm. wanting to show them, but you actually don't love the audience enough. Mm. So it, it, the point is lost because they right. don't. So I think as a film critic, sometimes when I'm analyzing a film, um, I can see that the filmmaker loves what they're showing. They're, they're love, they love what they're trying to do, but 
they don't care enough for the audience and that it, the audience is just missed. Mm. And, you know, and it, it turns out alienating the audience. And so I think we need to bridge that gap. And so we do need to see where the audience is at and start kind of moving them a little bit mm. um, without being condescending. You know, let me just add one more thing in light of your talk about Hannah. I think there's an extraordinary power in testimonies that you bore witness. You gave a testimony to somebody who lived a couple hundred years ago. And that testimony can have a winsome, compelling awakening of a yearning in you. Like, oh, I want to be like that person. Mm -hmm. So if you guys are able to say, oh, I commend you, somebody in our community or somebody in our city Mm -hmm. or somebody across the country or the world or across history, they lived in this gracious, generous, hospitable, et cetera, et cetera, way. It's just just putting these little things inside of their affections and imaginations to say, gosh, could I? And then obviously they look around at the empirical evidence and they get exhausted because jobs and kids and deadlines and traffic. That's overwhelming. As leaders, we want to have a lot of compassion, as you say, but that testimony is, it's powerful. And evangelicals are pretty good at testimonies. So if we can offer a range of testimonies that show and model and awaken and give a vision, I think that can help call something out in us. Well, thank you all for doing this, for being here. Thanks for your time. Great questions, everybody. Uh, Can we thank our speakers? There's a pine warbler sitting on a hollow limb. He seems to have the whole morning out right in front of him. And everything he sings from the branch that he's sitting on, it seems to hush the leaves and the colors all around. First he sings, and then he goes, and what it means, it's hard to know. A big thank you to our panelists for making time to be a part of this event. I encourage you to check out their books, follow them on social media. If you want to hear the other talks from this week, follow us on Twitter. We will make sure and link to them when Sojourn Network posts them. Another big thank you for this week goes out to Mark Owens. Mark not only mixed this episode as he mixes all of our stuff, but Mark actually did a lot of the coordination to make this event happen. Mark works for Sojourn Network, so he was kind of the key partner. Thank you, Mark. TJ Hester recorded the episode. I edited it. Our theme song, as always, is from Roman Candle. We'll be back next week. Thanks for listening. This episode was brought to you in part by the Lord of Spirits podcast. Many Christians yearn to break free of the influence of secular materialism and to understand the union of the seen and unseen worlds as made by God. What is the spiritual world like? Tune in wherever you get your podcasts.